The passage we're looking at this morning, as John helped us with an introduction to Ephesians, um, the first couple of verses are just that, that Paul wrote the letter to Ephesus, and, and he went all over that last week. So we're able to just look at verses 3 through 14. And 3 through 14 in the original manuscripts is one sentence, one continuous thought about the work of God. Oh, I see. So we have God, a, a triune God. Hey. And it seems fitting that... I appreciate worship with you, buddy. Oh, man. Oh. <laughs> okay, we're on it. <laughs> okay, we got that dialed in. <laughs> it seems fitting that while we're thinking about a triune God, a, a the, the unity of the persons of God, God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit, that is God. Each of them is God, and each of them is their own unique personality with a purpose, yet always working in unity. So the unity of a triune God seems to be the same as this one sentence with all this, I mean, a lot of theology packed into this one Greek sentence. It's amazing stuff. Um, but I'm not going to be able to cover all the theology that's in these 11 verses. But the page before the sermon notes in the back of the bulletin, you're going to see a listing of, I think, 32 independent theologies that can be discovered in these 11 verses. And I don't know, if you want to bounce back and forth and figure out how many of them I cover and put a check mark, that's up to you. I wouldn't do it. I think it will distract you. I think I'm going to be covering an awful lot, and that may even be distracting. But it's what the Word does, so we're going to do that. Um, I'm not going to avoid certain theology. Uh, it's just because they're so plentiful, I'm going to focus on the theology of a triune God. And specifically, I'm going to be looking at the work of each of the members of the Trinity. So let's um, read Ephesians. I'd say stand if you are able. They're not, it's not a long passage, uh, but out of respect for the, the Lord and His Word, you might want to stand. And I'll read. Ephesians 1, starting with verse 3. Blessed be the God... <coughs> excuse me. Blessed be the God... And Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places, even as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and blameless before him. In love, he predestined us for the adoption to himself as sons through Jesus Christ, according to the purpose of his will, to the praise of his glorious grace, with which he has blessed us in the Beloved. In him we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of our trespasses according to the riches of his grace, which he lavished upon us in all wisdom and insight, making known to us the mystery of his will according to his purpose, which he set forth in Christ as a plan for the fullness of time to unite all things in him, things in heaven and things on earth. In him we have obtained an inheritance, having been predestined according to the purpose of him who works all things according to the counsel of his will, so that we who were, to, who were the first hope, first to hope in Christ might be the praise of his glory. 
In him, you also, when you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation, and believed in him, were sealed with the promised Holy Spirit, who is the guarantee of our inheritance until we acquire possession of it to the praise of his glory. Amen. I think the point of this passage, or at least in the way I'm going to cover it, and I I believe it really does play out, uh, that God, united in the Trinity, works to the benefit of the believer to the praise of his glory. God, united in the Trinity, works to the benefit of the believer to the praise of his glory. It's about God and his glory. And the believers are the benefactors. I think it was so appropriate that Robin read from Psalm 23, he leads me in paths of righteousness for his name's sake. Righteousness, great benefit to us, but it's not about us. It's about him and his name's sake. So let's just pick it up. And get rolling. It's a lot to cover. But um, verses 3 through 6 are the work of God the Father. Verses 7 through 12 would be the work of God the Son. And 13 and 14 would be the work of God the Holy Spirit. So let's break into, just jump into verse 3. Blessed be God the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. Right off the bat, we have a praise. And there's a difference in concepts of blessed be God and God blessing his people. Certainly we can't bless God the way he blesses us. When he blesses us, he gives to us. We can't give to God. We have nothing to give him short of our our love. I suppose we do. Um, But we're not going to make things happen for God. He makes things happen for us. And to ask that God be blessed is to recognize his glory. And that's why he said it starts with the praise. Recognize his glory, his honor, his goodness. Uh, Theologian Charles Mould put it, to praise him with worshiping love. That's to say, blessed be God, is to praise him with worshiping love. And then it says, who has blessed us? And, And there's the other take on blessing, those on people from God. It's by his choice. By his choice, he's there for us. We can't make him do anything. He wouldn't if it was outside of his will anyway. And I don't... It is purposeful, but... To us, really, it's a sign of his grace. You know, again, he doesn't have to do anything for us, but by his grace, he does. When we pray to him, we're praying that he will bestow us with his grace. Again, he doesn't exist for us. It's quite the contrary. We are there for him, his creation, and it's designed for his glory, not ours. But as benefactors of his grace, his resources are available to us. Always. So that's the significant part. Yes, we can pray to him. We can ask them for things because his grace is there for us. It's, it is 
in searchable ways are there always for us. And as Paul says later in the letter, they are lavished on us. I mean, that's, that's pretty big, lavished on us. I mean, it's just, oh, it's not a coincidence. It's, it's happening. He is intentional about it. Uh, Paul narrows down what he means by God blessing us in this case it is in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places and there's four points to know about that God the Father is the one doing the blessing second he wants us to have these blessings third they are heavenly focused and fourth Blessings we receive are received through Christ. Now hearing that, doesn't it impact how you pray for blessings? If you're praying for blessings outside of those four elements, check yourself. I'm not saying they're necessarily wrong. That's not the total limit about anything you could pray inside. But that is the foundation of how you could be praying. The Father is the one doing the blessing. He wants us to have blessings. They're always heavenly focused, and they're received through Christ. Jump first four, and it has a grammatic hinge, even as. Paul takes us from explaining that we are blessed to how it is we're blessed. God the Father has chosen us, again, in Him, meaning in Christ, before the foundation of the world. The timing of that choice absolutely flies in the face of a path to unification with God by the efforts of man or salvation by adherence to the, an Old Testament law. This is saying that if you are a follower of Christ, God chose you before you had any awareness of your existence. That's pretty big. His choice was first. You have a choice of obedience but his choice was first. Logically, you wouldn't have made a choice unless he did. That's, that's the first and second. Imagine you were in a basketball game, and, and you were picked to be on a team. You were chosen to be on this team. That was the first choice. And then you're playing in the third game of the season, and the game is run down to the final uh, moments of the game, and you chose your choice to shoot that buzzer-beating shot. And you made it. It doesn't matter if you made it or not. You chose to take that shot. But you could not have chose that shot if you weren't on that team, right? You weren't even in the game. So that's what we've got here. God chose you first, since or before the foundations of the world, so way back in time, before your parents were married, or however you came to being, long before that. But he chose you. He made it personal right off the bat. And then inside of that choice, now you have a choice. Am I going to continue to sin or am I going to follow Christ? These are the choices that we have. But that order of choice is critical and God chose first. And what did he choose us for? To be holy and blameless before him. To be holy, simplified, is to be set apart for God. Blameless in this context is blame, blameless of sin. Uh, 
we did sin, he's just deeming us blameless. In all aspects except but or before him, we could not be holy or blameless. But before him, we can be. It's ultimately another choice by him. It's by decree that he accepts the work of Christ to declare us holy and blameless before him. As in a commentary, the Enduring Word commentary put it, any understanding of God's sovereign choosing that diminishes our personal responsibility for personal holiness and sanctification falls far short of the whole counsel of God. We'll go for another, this time I think a silly illustration, but it's one that makes the point, and it's back with basketball. You may have seen the AT&T commercial that has kids on a playground choosing sides. And one of the people standing with the kids is Charles Barkley. Little kids, Charles Barkley. And the guy picks Charles Barkley. And I think the commercial is the easiest choice in history. Well, that's great. And Barkley was all excited to be on the team. But what good would that choice have been if he didn't actually play? And that's where we are. Why would we want to waste God's choice with an indifference to our purity? If he's going to choose us as holy and blameless, why wouldn't we act like it? And I said we, I don't mean to put any guilt on anybody, if anybody on myself and you, we're a team, the two of us. And it's true. I mean, we're still in the flesh, so we're going to mess up. But God is still going to hold us. If we've chosen to follow Jesus, he is still going to hold us holy and blameless. I got to confess, I had a little difficulty reading um, the very last few words of verse 4. John mentioned this. They are in love. And... It's not that I was confused about what love meant. Uh, But the the words are the way Scripture was broken down, not the way Paul wrote it. But when we started inserting uh, verses and, and in this case, put it in the English language, certain things happened. And, And I don't know how it happened, but the first two words of the sentence that is the structure of verse 5 are actually stuck on verse 4. I don't doubt the words are talking about acts of God's love. It does leave me wondering if Paul intended to connect that love to the the choosing of God that's in verse 4 or the predestination that's in verse 5. And it seems to me the verse breakdown will connect it to four, but the sentence structure establishes it to five. And this is where I landed. I'll take them both as biblically correct. All right, we don't have to make a choice. We don't have to get hung up on this. I've already spent too much time on it. It is biblically accurate that God's love is a motivator of his choice of us and his predestination of it for us. Uh, This whole concept of love is so big in God's plan that he chose it to be a transmutable attribute of his. God loves so we can love. And if we love in the, the power of Christ, then we can love accurately. We can love bigger 
than if we don't have that advantage. In Christ, we love like God does. And, and nothing transmuted is to the full extent of what God does. We can't love to his level, but man, we can love big. If we got just the smallest portion of the big love he's got, we're loving big. Right? And that's why uh, John Best's memorial yesterday, man, love came out in that thing. I've never been on a memorial where so many people shared, and they were sharing the love that John put on them, and he put it on him, on them in Christ. I don't know that they all would have had the things they said if not for the conversion of John somewhat late in his life. But later early, it was big. And all, everybody who knows John knows just how big it was. Just an, an admirable man. Uh, so God's love is big. <clears throat> All of 1 Corinthians chapter 13, the love passage, is Paul expressing how important the motivation and acts of love are. And verse 13 really hits the mark. So now faith, hope, and love abide, but the greatest of these is love. It's interesting that the Bible would take a subject and and it does this more than once, and decide what the greatest is. Not the who the greatest disciple is. That the Bible squashes immediately. Jesus does. Um, but faith, hope, and love, yeah, they exist, but the greatest of these is love. And commandments. You know, love your Lord with all your heart, mind, and soul. And the second is like the first. Love your neighbor as you do yourself. That's not exactly what it says, but that's what I've got in my mind about it. He, he named two greatest commandments. So he does establish greatness, and love is among those choices. Still in verse 4, or the choice of verse 4, and the predestined of verse 5, they're not synonyms. Even though they're both done in love together, and that it links the two, they're not saying the same thing. Choice is a decision by God, and it's regarding our standing before him. Predestined means a previous appointment to a position. For example, a prince might be predestined to be a king. You know, it's this, this notion that early on we've assigned a position, and then it happens later. So we were predestined to this appointment of being sons of God. And let me take sexism out of that passage. Women are predestined to the same position, sons of God. It's a little odd. I'm a woman. How could I be a son? I'm speaking for you. I'm not a woman. I'm not identifying as a woman here up in front of you all. It's... But that is what Paul does. He, he assigns Christians, man or woman, to being sons of God. And why? is because the context of the time is the sons who are given the inheritance. Unfortunately, in those times, not the daughter. So to attain the inheritance, you need to be established as sons of God. And that's all Paul is saying. In our current country and, and in our time, 
it would have easily worked sons and daughters of God. There really isn't any difference, so to speak. But the technical, legal part, he was intentional about calling everybody predestined to be sons of God. And you'll see how important that inheritance is, or being among those who inherit, when we get to the last verse, verse 14. And again, can't ever gloss over it, it is in Christ, or through Christ in this case. In Christ, through Christ, in all the places we see Christ involved in this passage, we are reminded that the roles of the persons of the Trinity is done in the unity of one God, which is the Trinity. Okay. Can't, can't skip that part about just constantly working together in this passage. Christ gets the biggest mention. I forget what it was. I counted it a couple of different ways. 11, 12 times that Christ is mentioned in not even that many verses. Yet, it's the, the Father is orchestrating things. Christ is the doing of the things. The Holy Spirit is the making aware of the things, helping us in the things. Even though they'll say in Christ, it is still a unity of the Trinity that is pulling it all off. So why did God the Father choose who he has chosen? Or even why did he predestine us for adoption? And the answer is in the, the back half of verse 5. According to the purpose of his will, to the praise of his glorious grace. Again, continue that thought, that notion that it's not about you, it's about God. Okay, It's according to his purposes and to his glorious grace. The last words of verse 6 transitions us from the work of the Father to the work of the Son. It reads, With which he has blessed us in the Beloved. The Beloved is Jesus Christ. The word Beloved is translated from the original Greek agapato. It is the same root word that Matthew 3.17 uses when, uh, it, well, you'll recognize it. A voice from heaven, so obviously that would be God the Father, said, This is my beloved Son with whom I am well pleased. Listen to him. And I mention this so you can really connect the dots that Paul is writing inspired from heaven. Matthew was writing inspired from heaven. Where's the link? They're using the same language. They're using the same language as Jesus being the beloved. And think this through regarding being blessed in the beloved, in Christ. It is saying that God finds accept what God finds acceptable in Christ is what he's finding acceptable in you. Or those who are professing the name of Christ anyway. Uh, and this is incredible stuff. Why would anybody deny the opportunities of the gospel? And you can ask yourself that, and you, you need to, because you're going to be talking to people who are not familiar with the gospel, are against the gospel, are just kind of indifferent and not sure where they're supposed to be. And it's going to be your duty to share with them. So it's good to know why are they in the position they are some of us, I was 40 years old when I came to the Lord, 
And, and I know where I was. I was in a, in a prideful place that, hey, it's all about me. I'm very successful. I, you know, I got really good grades. The president's physical fitness testing that you used to have when you were in school, I was no star, but you had to perform at like 80% tile to be considered amongst the top. And that's pretty low standard in my mind. It's, it's like your pro athletes are in the less than 1%. But, but if you hit the 80%, you were going to score. And I could score in all of them. And when it came to my grades, I was in the 80 percentile. I mean, when I go to Macy's, and I can buy off the rack. I'm in the 80 percentile. And I, I somehow made that a prideful thing. It was about me. If something needed fixing, I can fix it. I'm a grandpa. You know, grandpas fix things. But now I fix it in the power of Christ. And that's to say that the people that are struggling with the gospel, they're probably struggling because the gospel glorifies God. And they want to be glorified. Maybe not personally, but they have pride in mankind, that mankind can go to the moon and mankind can do the crazy operations on on Tim Swanson that I saw the x-rays and He's a bionic man. I mean, he's got stuff going on all over the place. And how can they do this? Boy, man is great. He could build towers to the heavens. But God's greater. And what did God do with the tower? And what does God do with our pride? And how do you come to know Christ? God gets rid of all that stuff first. Okay? So if you're sharing the gospel, just know that These are people that you've been assigned to share with. God is loving them through you. Respect it. Honor where they're coming from. Change their minds. Give them the evidence that there is something greater than man, and that is God. Make it about him, not about man. If you accept that God's the one who deserves the glory, the gospel's easy. If you only accept that glory belongs to man, it's understandable that the gospel is going to be hard. So that's your battle. Your battle isn't trying to convince him who God is. Your battle is to trying to convince him where does God belong in their lives. He's got to be at the top. And that's the subject. The work of God the Son. Verse 7 begins, in him, like it does so often, referring to Jesus, the beloved of verse 6. Everything that's done in verse 7 through 12 is being done in Jesus and is the basis that I'm arguing that 7 through 12 belongs to God the Son. So let's dig into that work. And there's where you're going to start seeing a lot of the theology. Uh, We have redemption through his blood. And i got to take a minute to say something that I hope is not considered controversial. Just give me all the way to the end before you decide that it is. And that is that there is nothing mystical about the blood of Christ. It's not mystical. Okay? It solely represents what is important to the Christian. (laughs) Representation is all we have today. We don't have his blood. 
There's not some mystical place where there's this pool of blood that is regenerating and is constantly there being poured on us. No, it's not mystical. It's just simply saying Christ died. Romans 6.10 says, The death he died for sin, he died once for all. So why is it the blood of Christ is spoken of with such importance to the Christian? What is it representing? I said the answer is easy. His death. It points to his death. But let's take that a little deeper. Leviticus 17.11. The Hebrews are told not to eat the blood of animals because... Life is in the blood. That instruction becomes the cornerstone of the sacrificial system. The life of the sacrificed animal, the blood spilt on the altar before God, covers the sin of those for which the animal is being sacrificed. The life of Jesus, sacrificed for all sins, is represented by his blood covering all sins. 1 Corinthians 11.27, part of traditional communion verses, whoever therefore eats the bread or drinks the cup of the Lord in an unworthy manner will be guilty concerning the body and blood of the Lord. So this is where this mysticism seems to come in, that, that when you're drinking of the cup, that you're actually drinking his blood. You're drinking the representation of the death of Jesus. You're taking on the same cup that he had to take on. The cup in verse 25 doesn't say, this cup is the new covenant of my blood. It says, in my blood. And I know that's a subtle difference, but I just have to point it out. Now we can move on from the blood not being mystical but representative representative redemption redemption didn't come by a great power of jesus not by his love not by his teaching not by his example or by his authority while jesus was and did all those things they aren't the means of our redemption it is only by his blood his death his blood spilt that the penalty or payment in total as punishments for our sins, was satisfied forever. Satisfied forever. One time, back to Romans, one time for all sins, forever. And once satisfied, then forever. Doesn't have to keep sacrificing. We have to accept his blood. That one time, we have to believe in him. And then that, last forever. And back to Ephesians, forgiveness of trespasses. Trespasses meaning that we have done wrong, our sins. And let me note that we trespass on God's territory. It is God against whom we sin. David, very famously, after being confronted by Nathan over uh, the murder of Uriah, David confesses, I have sinned against the Lord. He didn't say, I sinned against Uriah. He didn't say, I sinned against Bathsheba. He sinned against the Lord. You see, we might sin by hurting others, by lying to others, or coveting others' belongings. But the real sin is breaking the standards by which God considers those things 
as sins. If God considers it a sin and you go and do it, you are breaking the relationship you have with him, not the person you sinned against. What, what you did was wrong against the person you did it to, but the real trespass is against God. And it's according to the riches of his grace. The richness referred to here is the measurement of his grace, the magnitude of the redemption. Past sacrifices were temporary. The cross covers past, present, and all future sins of the believer. It's a big element. Verse 8, which he lavished upon us in all wisdom and insight. The he this time is not Christ. He is seen again in verse 9 as his purpose which he set forth in Christ. So how could you have he set forth in Christ and be talking about the same person? It's the father and the son in this case. So while the work of Christ is... Let me try and say that again. It is the work of Christ that is orchestrated by the Father. It is done by the Son. And don't let the unity get away from you when it comes to a triune God. Because even saying that got just a little dicey, saying, well, but the Son is God, and the Father is God, and the Spirit is God. Isn't that He just God? Well, Okay, I confess, maybe. <laughs> it, it does get very difficult. But remember that the three that make up the Trinity are always working together, being one God. The all, seen in, in all wisdom and insight, is another clue as to the Father, Son, and Spirit being in counsel together. And back to lavished. Lavished can be thought of as an abundant cover. Not a squirt gun, but a super soaker. That is the amount of grace we have in Jesus. Regarding the wisdom and insight, God's time is not our own. <clears throat> all insight, to say all insight to a person would imply, man, this person's going to have to think this over and over and give it a lot of time and a lot of thought and consider a lot of things and and hope they've got it right. That's what an all insight would mean to me if I'm talking about any of you, myself, or anybody else I know. All insight with God in our economy, that might be a long time for God, or it might be a very short time. But he's no fool. He never gets it wrong. He's going to get it right. And all insight means in all correctness. And in all that insight and wisdom, he decided to do what we're hearing in verse 12 later. And I'm going to hold on to that later. Um, verse 9, making known to us the mystery of his will. What is this mystery? Scripturally, mystery is the revelation of something that existed but was not previously known. And this mystery will be dealt with in greater depth when we get to chapter 3. 
But the abbreviated answer, I'm not going to leave a cliffhanger out there, the abbreviated answer is in this passage, verse 10, to unite all things in him. You could look forward to chapter 3. It explains in greater detail just how Christ does that. And I also want to bring special attention to of his will according to his purpose. It echoes verse 5's according to the purpose of his will. And again in verse 11, according to the purpose of him. It is a constant reminder throughout the passage that God is in charge and not the efforts of man that brings us our salvation. I've already mentioned that verse 10 is the answer to what the mystery God has revealed through Christ, but I didn't address which he set forth in Christ as a plan for the fullness of time. And let me compare the fullness of time to, to try and understand a little better with that of the life of a, of a pear on a pear tree. You pick it early before it's time and it will not taste as soft and sweet as when you give it its fullness of time. You give it its fullness of time to ripen. Jesus, he frequently mentioned that his time had not yet come, referring to his future glorification. A couple of verses, if you just want to jot them down, look at them later, would be John 2, 4 and John 7, 8. And they're examples of when Jesus is talking about his fullness of time. Verse 11 continues with the responsibility of God the Son. In him we have obtained an inheritance. That inheritance being fellow heirs with Christ to the eternal life in the presence of God. That's John Best. That's where he is right now. He's in the presence of God, absent of any sin, a restored body. That's his inheritance. That's our inheritance. That's what we can look forward to. That is our hope. And hope, when I say hope, that's not a, a wish. That is just our future. And we come again to predestined and according to his will. We also see the concept of plurality and counsel, which I talked about both of those a little bit earlier. And we see for the first time who works all things. Romans 8.28 is the promise of God working all things together for good of those who are called to him according to his purpose. How he pulls all things together, we'll go back to that word, it's a mystery. How he pulls those things together is not yet known. It will be, and the mystery will be clear to us. We have things that we deem good and things we deem disasters. And yet we hear God is working all things. So he's working these disasters against us? No. I mean, the most common understanding seems to be God allowing the disasters. Not creating. He doesn't create evil. But he's allowing that evil. And the circumstances that come with it. He's never surprised by it. And he orchestrates those things for the good to his purpose. We've probably all been through some level of tragedy that in hindsight we would say, man, was God working in that? My testimony is that I have a daughter who was extremely 
ill, a really horrible condition that put her in a wheelchair for more than a year. Um, my wife called me and said, listen, you, you've got to get to the hospital as soon as you can. And I thought, this could be it. And she, we sh she showed signs of deteriorating really rapidly. So it was time to go to the hospital. And I don't know why I went to work instead of going to the hospital. That was Kelly before Christ. I would never do that now. But that's what I did, and she called, and I was driving over to the hospital, and I remember the exact spot I was on the overpass to get to Highway 12, and I grabbed the steering wheel, and I screamed to God, don't let anything happen to my baby. And I didn't know who I was screaming to. I didn't know who that was that I'm crying out to. But God knew me. And he used that really horrible situation to start a relationship with me that has caused me ever since to seek his face and really do know who is this God that I cry out to. He didn't invent this horrible circumstance, but he orchestrated the things around it to praise him. He is the one I give the glory and you all have your independent story that sounds so much like that. So you're all keenly aware of what I'm talking about if you're following Christ. I didn't have any of that written down, by the way. <laughs> i just—I got to find my place. Yeah, his work is... Here's another example. Not my own testimony, but it's got to be the biggest example we can imagine. Do you think there was evil in the killing of Christ? Yeah. There was plentiful opportunity not to do the evil. Not to make him suffer. Not to mock, whip, and humiliate him as mankind did to what is now our Savior. But the evil and suffering Christ endured on the cross was not a surprise to God. His prophecy in Isaiah 53 shows us it was not a surprise. But he did allow it. And no better good has equaled its outcome. Amen? Amen. Amen. Verse 12. We the first who believed in him. Presumably that is referring to the Jews who first believed in Christ. The position Paul was in. And I could say that because it's just a couple of words later that in him you also is now including the Gentiles. Okay, so that just kind of clears up who's, the, who's who in this. Uh, we the first who believed in him was the Jews and in him you also is the Christians of Ephesus. And that brings us to the work of God the Holy Spirit. Verse 13. The final couple of verses in our passage, 13 and 14, bring in this work of God the Holy Spirit. His job, so to speak, is to seal us and guarantee our inheritance all the way up to the time we receive it. The inheritance that I had already mentioned is this position of being glorified. But verse 13 needs some examination. <clears throat> It certainly involves Christ as another in him, but the things that are done in him lead to the sealing by the Holy Spirit. 
He's the, the Holy Spirit is the subject of 13. In him is sort of a happenstance, a glorious one, one that I can't dismiss. But I think the real subject is Paul letting us know that this sealing is by the Holy Spirit. And what are those things in verse 13 that the Spirit seals? Well, it's the gospel. Let's break it down. In him, that would be Christ, you also, in in addition to obtaining the inheritance, when you heard the word of truth, the gospel of salvation, that is not me filling in the words, that is the words of God, the gospel of salvation, when you heard of truth, the gospel of salvation, and these would have been the, the truth about God, the, the truth about sin, the truth about Christ, and believed in him, according to the word. When sharing the gospel, there's a fourth truth to share, and that is a need for the response of the person. Belief is required. This is also known as calling on the name of Christ. From those things, the believer is then sealed with the Spirit. I feel a little guilt not giving more time of this sermon to the Spirit, but I must stay faithful to the passage. And Paul doesn't give him a lot of time, so either will I. It it even seems as though the very Word doesn't put the Holy Spirit very frequently in mind. But it's there. I mean, it's there a lot. Um, To me, sealing and guaranteeing us an inheritance is a never-ending job until we actually receive it. I mean, it's a moment-by-moment, always-catching-us type of a job by the Spirit. Jesus is not going to lose one who the Father gives him. But don't we try and get lost? You know, your smart-alcoholic brother is like, yeah, Kelly, get lost. I listened. <laughs> I mean, I, I frequently walk a path that is not the one intended by the Lord. It's my flesh. It's still here. You know, hopefully, and I, I think I pull this off somewhat successfully, or Jesus does, um, I get back on the path. I repent. I ask forgiveness, and I go and follow the path. When we walk distance from, distant from God, the indwelling spirit is the one who convinces us, convicts us to get back on the path. That's his job. That's why I say it's a never-ending, all-encompassing, very difficult job. And the spirit is involved in that counsel that we referred to. He is key in translating or revealing Christ's work. Christ said in Matthew 12, 24, but if it is by the Spirit of God that I cast out demons, then the kingdom has come upon you. I'm going to turn to John 16 and read 6 through 11. You might start turning now if you want to follow with me. And it's, it's one of a few verses that I'm only a few that I'm going to mention, that really give you a better idea of the importance of the Spirit. Don't, don't take them lightly. It's too big. John 16, 6 through 11. 
And Jesus was talking about leaving his disciples. And he said, but because I have said these things to you, sorrow has filled your heart. Nevertheless, I tell you the truth. It is to your advantage that I go away. For if I do not go away, the helper will not come to you. But if I go, I will send him to you. And when he comes, he will convict the world concerning sin and righteousness and judgment. Concerning sin, because they do not believe in me. Concerning righteousness, because I go to the Father. And you will see me no longer. Concerning judgment, because the ruler of this world is judged. Well, not only the big counsel of God, this unity in the Trinity, but the vital importance of the Spirit. Jesus is saying, you need to let me go because you need this Holy Spirit. Also, John 7, 37, 39. Just back a couple of pages. The world cannot hate you, but it hates me because I testify about it that it works for evil. You go up to the feast. I am not going to the feast, for my time has not yet fully come. Wait a second. I brought you to the wrong place. <laughs> I was reading verse 7. Didn't seem to fit. Yeah, this makes more sense. John 7, 37 and 39. On the last day of the feast, the great day, Jesus stood up and cried out, If anyone thirsts, let him come to me and drink. Whoever believes in me, as the scripture has said, out of his heart will flow rivers of living water. Now this he said about the Spirit, whom those who believed in him were to receive. For as yet the Spirit had not yet been given, because Jesus was not yet glorified. I bring in these roles of the Spirit that are outside of this passage, not because I cared that he was getting shortchanged, but to convince you the role of the Spirit and those of the Father and the Son in today's Ephesus passages, or Ephesians passages, they're not the all-inclusive work of the triune God. You know, there's more. There's more to the triune God than you could put in one sentence in the original Greek. And it takes the, the entire Bible to really just dig deep and be saturated with the work of the Trinity. So I've spoken in a lot of detail. And the subjects were many, and I fear the result is getting lost in the details. I, I don't want that to happen uh, but I had to remain true to this church's commitment to expositional preaching. So it's what the passage says, and we need to talk about it. I apologize for any favorite theology of yours that is in here that maybe I didn't cover. The desire is we teach the word as it's written. And this one, it's stuffed full of theology. Time alone is the limit to why or what we could cover. And now's the opportunity for me to drive a focus. Let us be reminded of the summary of the passage stated when I started. God, 
united in the Trinity, works to the benefit of the believer, to the praise of his glory. While we are accounted among the benefactors of the work of God, the truth is he is working to his glory. I'll say that over and over. He is working to his glory. Yeah, creating us in his image and building us up in Christ's likeness is to our benefit, but the point to it all is to glorify him. Even with our salvation being offered through Christ's suffering and resurrection to his glory, or to glory, the key implication of the gospel is God's glory. The gospel, in some strange sense of saying it, is not about us. We're the benefactors of the gospel. It's about the glory of God. That's what the gospel is. And our part in doing this, uh, that is bringing God glory, is simple to describe. Follow him in him. Follow him in Christ. It's our flesh that's going to get in the way. Resist deception. Resist temptation. Turn quickly from sin and do this in the power of Christ. Learn and honor God's word. Be ready to stand. Be ready to stand for it and proclaim the gospel when you're assigned to do so. And if you're wondering, how do I know I'm assigned to If you're wondering it, you are. You know, if you're thinking, I, I wonder if this is the time, it's the time. Seize it. Share the gospel. Another big thing to remember, and it's heavily demonstrated in this passage, it's just it's going to be repeating the same thing. The subject of the entire Bible is God, not you. It's all about God. Applications belong to you and are greatly for your benefit, but the main thing is God and his glory. The only way to come away from Scripture on a high is to be sure that you've placed God even higher. You want to feel great in this life? Keep God greater in all things. Let's pray. Lord God, over and over, you show us how great you are, and you show us your glory, and you show us that while we benefit from that, that you are the purpose. Your purpose and your will is to glorify yourself. Lord, and it's not done in some selfish way. It is because it's who you are. You deserve. You are that glorious. You deserve for us to praise you and name you uh, above all names all the time. And Lord, as we get ready to share communion with you and, and bring John Hansen up to do that, Lord, I, I just ask that as we're, we've got a few minutes uh, before we share the elements together, that, that we can sit and, and focus on you. That as we're drinking the cup and eating of the body, that we would, we would recognize what you did on the cross to our benefit but to your glory. I say these things in the name of Jesus Christ, our Savior. Amen.